Hello, Silvertown. Welcome to the Silvertown podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. Real quick, I want to mention SilvertownPodcast.com. We have tons of resources there to help you fight cravings, build mindsets. It's a place where you can become the architect of your own recovery. Also, we have a list of sober communities you can get involved with. Sober communities are just vital to our recovery, finding like-minded people that we can relate with. There's I Am Sober, Boom Rethink the Drink, Addicted in Film Movie Club with Ted Perkins, The Phoenix, Getting Sober dot, dot, dot again, This Naked Mind, Silvertown Facebook Group, All of these are amazing communities with amazing sober warriors on a journey trying to get sober just like you and I. So today we have another sober warrior, a Silvertown resident, Marie, with us, and she's going to tell us her recovery journey. Marie, how the heck are you? You know, I'm doing really well today and I'm sober. (laughs) Boom. I love that. And uh, I'm very, very happy to be. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to wake up without a hangover and without guilt and shame. I think you can't put a price tag on that. (laughs) Much, much, much nicer to do it that way. I am thrilled to be here and excited and just full of joy today and excited to share my journey of recovery with you. I'm 55 years old. I'm a retired high school choir teacher. And, uh, you know, I, I started off as far as my drinking I was a late bloomer with drinking, actually. I, I had some champagne on my prom night in a limo, and this is back in 1986. And uh, it was interesting to me. We were passing the bottle, and everybody was getting kind of tipsy, and I got tipsy for about seven minutes, and then I wasn't tipsy anymore, and I'm just drinking it like nobody's business. Didn't realize that might be a problem later in life, and then I didn't touch alcohol again until I was 24. But when I did at 24, my first husband, we were drinking a beer and I said, God, I just don't like the taste of this. And he said, Oh, just drink the whole thing. You'll be fine. And you'll change your mind. And sure enough, I did still didn't drink a ton. It was around 2012 when it took a big turn. And that's when my mom passed away and some things happened in my life that brought about some PTSD that I didn't realize I had, an anxiety disorder that I didn't realize I had, and ADHD, which until January of 2023, so recently, I was never diagnosed with. And to see how all of those elements play a part in my drinking has been very eye-opening. And it's also been very refreshing. And I say that literally because You know, I think we all sit there trying to pinpoint when we started drinking, what are our triggers? And people keep saying to you, reach out to me, whether it's through AA, the church or your friend group and supports. And sometimes the answer, at least for me, has been, yeah, I know to do that, but I just don't want to. And that phone that we know weighs 8,000 pounds, I put it to the side because being in my self-pity Being in my denial and being in the disease was more comfortable. You know, when I was teaching, I used to tell my students all the time, 
if you live in your excuse long enough, you become the excuse. And boy, should I have taken those words to heart. But because of where I worked, and it was an, it's an inner city kind of urban situation, it was really easy to take on those students' problems as my own, so I didn't have to deal with my own problems. So going back to the year 1967, when Marie was born, yeah, that's a long time ago, <laughs> I grew up in a house of, there's five of us, my dad, my mom, my sister and brother, and me. My dad was an alcoholic, and I guess around the time I was four years old, his quote unquote testimony was that he was over a toilet seat with a beer in one hand and a Bible in the other saying, God, I don't know what to do. And because he grew up in a Southern Baptist household, he was very familiar with scripture and God and the church. And he decided to pour his beer down the toilet, flush it and go with the Bible. Now, if I left the story there, you'd go, wow, that's pretty impressive. And what ended up happening is he became a preacher he got fired from a couple of positions because he was embezzling money. He got fired because he was verbally abusive and, attack and attacked many deacons in the church. And around 19, let's see, I want to say 1978, 77, 78, we moved back to Colorado. We had been in Kentucky this whole time. And uh, when we got kicked out of the last church, which in Colorado... If you follow Colorado at all, the new Casa Bonita is making an appearance and we lived right behind it. And after he got fired from that position, we moved into a motel, motel, no tell motel right across the street from Casa Bonita. And this little 10 year old was walking at Golden Retriever at 10 o'clock at night on East Colfax, which is lovingly called Hookerville. It was good times, good times in my life. And all of this is going on while my dad is physically abusing all three of his children, emotionally abusing us, not to the point where it ended up turning and sexually abusing me. He would give me threats like, if you tell anybody, I'm going to kill you or kill myself and kill the family. And, you know, he started sexually abusing me at the age of four. And I remember this. This is one of the superpowers of ADHD. I have a very, very good memory and he was molesting me then. And I knew it was wrong. And I wondered, you know, what the hell had I done to deserve this? And by the time I was 10 years old, living in that motel, my dad had decided he was going to become an evangelist, kind of like think of Oral Roberts or, or Jimmy Swaggart and those older guys, Billy Graham kind of situation. And the Southern Baptist Church loved my father, loved him. And Part of his threats to me and my mom, and I say my mom because she was the other big subject of his power, was if you say anything, nobody will believe you because I am a preacher. And truthfully, he was a different person in the pulpit than he was at home, and which obviously shows signs of mental, mental disorders on his part. And continuing growing through that, I was... 14 years old when my dad touched me for the last time, because I don't know what happened in me that snapped, but I said to him, touch me again and I will kill you. And I meant it. I meant it. I knew he was not sexually abusing my brother or my sister, but he did an excellent job of separating the three of us out and kind of segregating us from each other. 
you know, my sister is 18 months younger than me and my brother is three years younger than me. So we were like, boom, boom, boom. So you would think we would grow up being incredibly close, but we weren't. We tattled on each other because we didn't want the abuse. I called my brother a turd when I was 13 years old and I'll never forget it to my dying day. My dad stripped me down naked after I cut my own switch and he beat me with that switch 13 times from bottom of my feet to the top of my head. And I welted up so bad I couldn't go to school for three days. And after that, and it's because I called him a turd and I ran into my bedroom picked the mattress off my bed and hid underneath of it. And I learned to isolate in that moment. I learned to escape. And part of my coping was going to bed early. Part of the stress was I had huge stomach issues. If I got sick, I vomited uncontrollably, like almost bulimic style. And when I got sick, I always ended up with bronchitis or bronchial pneumonia. And I know now from a couple of years of very intense trauma therapy that that was my body reacting to the stress of what was happening. And as I got older and watched my dad in the pulpit, I was so angry at God. And I mean, angry, furious, pissed. I was quiet. I was isolated. I was a wallflower. And and I would watch him up there and I was mesmerized because I will, I will tell you as God, my honest truth. He was amazing in the pulpit, absolutely amazing. And he led many people to Christ. And even though I was so angry at God, why is this happening to me? You know, it was that constant, why are you doing this to me? And after I told him to stop touching me, the emotional abuse intensified. I mean, good Lord, you know, he would, we would be at home and he would say these words and I hope it's okay to say it or you can bleep me out. I fucking hate you. You're dating a fucking Catholic. He's going to burn in hell. You're not doing your due diligence by being a missionary at school. And so consequently, the spiritual abuse is a real thing. And I mean, I believed I was going to burn in hell if I didn't sit with my Bible junior year in high school in the cafeteria in a very small mountain town and witness to students. Now, I know you're thinking, boy, she must have had best friends galore. (laughs) I just didn't. You know, kids knew who I was and I was traumatized and I was just trying to survive my life. And again, I say unbeknownst to me, I had ADHD, but that was covered up by so much trauma and trying to filter through that. And so my mom and I became very close friends, almost a dysfunctional mother-daughter relationship because I was more her caretaker than she was mine. You know, she was physically abused by him and incredibly emotionally abused. You know, she submitted to his leadership. She obeyed him, all of those typical things. And she had dropped out of high school to marry him. She taught herself to drive a car. She wrote her first check when she was 32 because he had her under him. And, you know, made it through high school. My senior year, I kind of came out of my shell because I am a singer. And I'm going to say it. I'm a damn good singer. And I somehow got the lead in our musical and it changed my life. And it was awesome. Annie, get your gun. Worst musical ever written. (laughs) Submitting to a guy. But I had 13 incredible belt solos. And I met, 
I met and got to know some incredible people in high school. I did not trust any of them because I didn't trust people. So I wouldn't say I was close friends with them, but I knew every one of them and they knew me. And they knew I was crazy and giddy and happy. And, and I laughed a lot at my choir teacher, who still to this day is my mentor, colleague, and a father figure to me like no other. And this is after how many years? 1986, a hell of a lot of them. And he knew something was going on in my life. He just didn't know what. And he took chances on me and gave me responsibilities. And I became like the typical kid coming from an abusive home. I lived at the school and I never wanted to go home. I went to college in Oklahoma. I did not want to go. It was a Baptist school. My dad said, I'll help you pay for college if you go there. And my mom said, you have to go. You have to get out of here. And what's wonderful about childhood trauma is you don't want to leave it. And at least for me, that people pleaser and that need to fix and solve and protect and take care of was huge. And I felt guilty going to Oklahoma from Colorado and I didn't want to go. It was more comfortable to stay in my misery. I knew that devil. I hated that devil, but I knew that devil, but I did. I went to Oklahoma and what I found was even though I went to a Baptist school where I'm going to say it, Jesus was pissed all the time. He hated gays. He hated, I mean, I'm just telling you, it's like you couldn't dance. Everything was a sin. And so it just validated to me everything I was taught and not in a good way, not in a good way at all. And, but what I did learn is being in college and away from that abuse you know, I had a choice to make. I could have gone off the deep end and drank myself silly and all of that, but I didn't. I didn't. I, I made a good friend group. I, I went and witnessed on the beaches of Florida with the, with the Southern Baptist Student Union in a bathing suit. And, uh, you know, I look at those times and I laugh about it. And I wasn't using my story of trauma at that moment. I really wasn't because I was embarrassed and I was full of shame. And at that point, I still hadn't told my mother. And in 1991, I was engaged to a young man, my first husband. He was safe. He was, he was a virgin. I was a virgin. He was safe. And my mom left my dad and she went to Arizona to stay with my aunt. And then she told me I'm going to go back to him. And I don't know what it was inside of me. I'm going to call it God. I would not have told you that at the time, but I'm going to tell you now it was God. I drove within my car with Chris, my first husband. We went to Arizona and I sat in a hot tub with my mother and I told her exactly what had gone on. She was mortified. And at some level, she knew something was wrong and going on, but she didn't know to that extent. And of course, she apologized and did all the motherly things. And I let it go. And I forgave her because in my heart, there was nothing to forgive. And I went back to school and came back to Colorado with my first husband. It didn't work out. We were only married for about three years. Because when I took the job at my first high school and the only high school that I taught at, I found home. Because instead of being the anomaly of a child be growing up in abuse, I was the norm. I had so many students of color who were living the same exact life I had just come from. And I could be a resource to them and I could be relatable to them. And I could use music as a teaching tool to teach them life skills. And I did it. I did it for for 25 years there and then went to an elementary where I did it for another three years, but just at a, at a younger level. And during that time there, I went through toxic 
administration after toxic administration, but I was so used to toxicity and I had so many different ways and avenues that I had tried to survive that, which was, I was a workaholic. I mean, big time. I never wanted to be at home. I wanted to be the savior. I wanted to help those kids. I wanted to protect them. And I didn't know that that was an ego thing for me. It really was. And then in 2012, when my mom passed away and the principal at that school said, you can't, I was looking to get out of that building because that administration was really bad. And I was looking to get out and he told me, Marie, you can't teach anywhere else. You're great here. You're the best teacher we've got in this building, but you can't do it anywhere else. And all of a sudden, everything that I had been taught was validated yet again. The teacher, my drama teacher that I taught with for 20 years, my sole sister in my life who helped me through my first divorce and going into my second marriage and then subsequent second divorce because he he's, he's a piece of work who put me down constantly, just reinforced behavior inside of me. He was a lot like my dad with, with sexual addiction problems and worked in the church and another and another music teacher. And it just all along, just kept validating and validating. And the fact that I really hadn't turned to alcohol, I mean, I drank socially and I could drink people under the table. I didn't understand why. And I worked my butt off to not be my father. And when all of those things happened, my, my theater teacher retired that same spring. So in the course of about three months, I turned to alcohol because all of my coping skills went out the window. Everything, my from my mom's death. And that is just another story in its entirety. And it was, un we didn't see it coming. It just happened in the week of my spring break. And to give you an idea of the toxicity of the building, my mom had a heart attack on a Tuesday. She passed away on that Friday. I was to be in school on Monday from spring break. I called in and said, I need bereavement for a week to put this all together and do a memorial, all the things you have to do. And I came in the following Monday and the principal said to me, you know, I'm really sorry for your loss, but I need proof that your mom died. Yeah. So that I could get paid for that week. And I did one of the, the most brave things I've ever done. And very snarky thing is I walked in the next day with her ashes and the death certificate and put it on his desk and walked away. I didn't have words, but I had alcohol. I could numb the pain. I could come home. And I would drink from the time I got home until I went to bed. And I didn't think I had a problem. And I did it because the pain was great. And I didn't know how to cope with the pain. But I knew if I drank, I would relax. I did the whole typical telling myself, you can relax using alcohol. You can do this and you can go to sleep. Because what I've since learned now, since January, reading everything I can get my hands on about ADHD, my brain would not shut off. It just wouldn't. But if I drank enough, I could black out. And I married my third husband in, in 2014. And somewhere between 2014 and 2015, he said to me, Marie, I love you. And I am only going to bring this up once, but you do drink a lot in the evening. And at that point, I was pretty much, I can look back and go, <laughs> knowing where I ended up drinking, it wasn't that much. I was drinking probably half a bottle, half a liter of absolute a night. And at first I was mixing it with tonic or it was gin. It was one of the two. And then it was just straight. <laughs> it was over ice and then forget about it. Just pour it in the glass, you know, and I'd sip on it all night. And I thought, well, how dare you? 
I'm not drinking too much. Well, of course, my answer was then to buy a second absolute bottle. And this is when you know you have the disease of alcoholism is I would pour, I'd get home and I would pour from the one bottle into my glass and I had the other bottle hidden, same liter bottle. He'd go out in the garage to piddle around in his man cave. And I would take the other bottle, the unopened bottle, open it and pour it into the opened bottle to the level of where it looked like maybe I wasn't drinking as much. A normal person would have said, screw that, drink from the other bottle and, you know, and make it work. But pouring it <laughs> so dumb and ludicrous. And I did that for a while. And then I'm like, screw this. I don't want to pour it. I'm making a mess. So I started buying the wonderful little 99 cent shooters because aren't those great? Aren't those just a wonderful thing to have? And I got known at my drive through liquor store by the school. I could drive up. The guy knew me. And he all he would say is he'd whisper the words, how many? And on my fingers, I would hold up six, nine, or I'd go 12, buy them. And then around 2017, I was drinking them on the way home. But I didn't have a problem. Just so you know, I didn't have a problem. Because to admit I had a problem meant to, meant to me, I had to admit I was like my father, which I couldn't do. I just couldn't. And so I did that and I hid it for a while. And I was a good high functioning alcoholic. Well, the more you drink, especially a vodka, you know, we're so stupid. We're so smart. Alcoholics are so smart, but we're so stupid thinking, well, we're going to drink vodka because it doesn't smell. Listen, <laughs> when it's coming out of your pores, you fucking smell. <laughs> you reek. And Juan knew I had a problem. And in 2018, January 28th of, of 2018, I got my first DUI. I was coming home. I was singing in a rock band at this time. I had just left Hinkley High School. Oh, sorry. I don't know if I can say the name of the school. If you need to, you bleep it out. But it's in Aurora. And I had just left there, meaning I was working at an elementary school because I had finally had it with that principal. And a friend of mine who was the principal at an elementary said, I'm going to save your life. Come over here. And she did save my life. But the problem was, <laughs> this is my ADHD brain. I promise I'm going to circle back to what I was saying. She was the best principal I've ever worked for. The most support I've ever had. The happiest I was. And I had to self-sabotage because it was too good to be true. I just didn't know it at the time. I did not know how to live in a happy place. I just didn't. And I was waiting for the other shoot to fall. So I was drinking even more when I got home. Isn't that funny? Because all of a sudden I'm in a place that is wonderful. I don't have the time commitments that high school had. So I'm singing in a rock band. I'm doing some other stuff. And yeah. 2018. I got my first DUI. I was coming home from a gig. Golden, Colorado, Brighton, Colorado is a 45 minute drive. And I managed to make it all the way to Brighton. And all of a sudden, I start feeling the woos coming on and the blackout starting to happen. And I pulled my car over at a Walgreens parking lot and a cop pulled up behind me because apparently I was driving too slow and got my first DUI. And that BAC was at a right at a point two. And oh, my God, I just went to hell in a handbasket. Oh, my God, I got a DUI. What am I going to do? Oh, no, you know. Got home after I spent the night in a detox place. He did not take me to jail. And I got home, told my husband, told my son, said I got a DUI and I may have a problem. 
I may have a problem. Well, suffice to say that Monday, so Saturday I'm home, Sunday happens, Monday I go to school and I'm talking to a girlfriend about it. I was mortified, just mortified. What am I going to do? She said, let's go out after work. So we did. And we had a few drinks and I drove home after I stopped by the drive through liquor store drinking even more. And a mile away from my house, I pulled over, same scenario, and I got a second DUI. Two in one weekend. Man, you just cannot. You think it's a two-for-one offer? It's not. And that BAC was a .287. And went to detox, called my husband when I was in detox and said, you're not going to believe this. I got a second DUI. And his words were, you sound like you're fine. That's how high-functioning I was. I really I had snowed even myself, got out of that situation and started and thought, okay, I've got to get serious about this. So I started the AA thing. I started my DUI classes. I got a lawyer, a lawyer who was a wonderful, and now he's a wonderful friend of mine. And he, listen, in Colorado, it's a, it is supposed to be a 10 day minimum mandatory jail sentence. And somehow by the grace of God, I got a 10, I can't even believe I'm saying this. I got a 10 day in-house arrest. That's it. Now I did have 96 hours of community service and I had a year and a half, 18 months of drug and alcohol classes, right? And unfortunately, that particular class that I went to, he was biding his time. And don't get me wrong, I'm friends with the guy now. And it was more, we're going to, play the game of doing the classes. So I learned some things, but we didn't go through a workbook. We didn't do cognitive behavioral therapy or any of that. I was just going through and paying my $30 each week to do a two hour class where we basically did a check-in and bullshit, truthfully. And I met two of my closest friends that I have now today in that class who are not alcoholics. And at that point, I still wasn't calling myself an alcoholic, but I was trying to get help. I went to AA, I went to a women's group and I did an IOP because I thought that's what I need to do because I knew in the back recesses of my mind that I would lose my husband if I didn't do something about it. Well, I kept hiding. I stopped drinking for about four months and in October, and at this point I'm on probation and I'm doing the UAs and I had figured out how to circumvent the UA meaning if I didn't get called on Friday morning when I, or when I called in to see if I had a UA, if I didn't get, and I did it at 5.30 in the morning, if I didn't have that, but let's say I knew, but there's a chance I might get it Monday, I could drink all day Friday and be fine and be clean on Monday. I know, crazy, right? The stupid things that we will do. And I knew with the interlock in my car, as long as I didn't drive, I was fine. And if I needed to drive, I could go back and go, okay, I can have three shots. It takes an hour to go to work one through your system. I would add another hour for safety. So I could be four hours, go backwards four hours. Oh yeah. Planning tonight, man, I was a master planner and, and I will say this, I was a master manipulator in my own life. I wasn't hiding things from my husband. He knew. And he was going to Al-Anon, bless his heart, that man's been going for five years, and we are currently going through a divorce. Some of it stems from my alcoholism. A lot of it stems for some other reasons that I'll go to it, into here in a sec. 
And I battled going in and out of AA. And when I say in and out, I was going once a week and doing the stuff, but thinking, you know, I know I've got a problem, but I can't help it. I can't help it. And so I would have, you know, one to two months where I would be good and sober, and then I'd fall off. And the one thing that did stay consistent from 2018 to now is when I got back on the wagon, it was immediately like I would go, when I say I fell off, I would binge drink. Woo, am I a good binge drinker? And I would binge drink, binge drink for two to three days, usually end up in the hospital because of withdrawals and, and then get back on that horse immediately, go back to the rooms of AA, go back to my church, go back to scripture, reaching out to God, because I will say this as pissed as I was at God for so, so long, it's because of who God was to me then being able to make it a God of my understanding. I could open up my heart and actually believe in God. And for me, it is the all power, all knowing almighty God who sent his son, Jesus to die for me. And I believe in the grace of God and because I've seen it. And in 2019, I found my father and I went to confront him as part of a step four not to make amends, but I needed closure. And I hadn't seen or heard from him since 1991. The last thing he said to me in a phone message was, if I see you again, I will kill you. And I lived in fear of him from 91 to 2019. He was 75 years old. He had shrunk from six foot two, 190 pounds to five foot one and 90 pounds. He had spent the last 25 years of his life completely and utterly alone. That was God's punishment. I wanted him dead. I'm just going to say it. That's how I felt about it. God's punishment was worse. He had been diagnosed with bipolar schizophrenia. So we weren't surprised, but he refused to admit he actually had it, didn't take medication. And I sat in his living room with my husband and I asked him the dreaded question, why? His first response was, how is your walk with the Lord? And I was like, fuck you, dude. I didn't say it because I still have a respect for my parents. <laughs> if that makes sense. I hate the man, but I had some respect. But to get to forgiveness, I had to, for me, know the why. And I, again, I said, my walk with the Lord is great. You don't, you don't deserve to know about it. So what I want to know is what did, what did I do? Why me? What was it? You looked exactly like me. Okay, listen, folks, <laughs> you want to talk about ego? Are you kidding? And then he said to me, and I was in utter disbelief. He said, I wasn't having sex with your mother, but it doesn't make me a pedophile. And it was in that moment that I realized mental disorder is a real thing. And while you can't enable you, it's really hard. Because you can, you can say that's the excuse. And I can say he believed exactly what he said. He said he was full of anxiety for a while because he knew what he was doing was wrong. And I'm going to quote my pastor who said in two years ago at a Christmas Eve service, he said this. He said, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and his last words were, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those Romans knew exactly what they were doing to Jesus. They were throwing stones. They were piercing his side. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They were spitting at him, yelling atrocities and defamations. But what Jesus meant was they didn't know what they were doing to his soul. 
my father knew exactly what he was doing to me physically. He had no idea what he did to my soul. And he had no idea what he did to my brain and what he did to me spiritually, mentally, emotionally. He had no idea. And crazy as this sounds, I could forgive him because I knew he didn't know. And I go back to what Jesus said, Father, forgive him. He knew not what he did. I couldn't make him understand. And it wasn't my place. And he will sit in judgment with his God. That's not for me to decide. It's not for me to decide if he's in heaven or hell. That's not my, that is not my call. My call is to worry about me. And I went home and I was still drinking, but not, like I said, I would have my two, one to two months. And all of the sudden we went into COVID land. And part of that COVID land before that, about six months before, I'm sure you'll recall and not to get political, but we had a situation with president named Donald J. Trump, who was creating more chaos in our world. Whether you like him or not, I think everybody could agree we were in a chaotic state. We didn't know what was going to happen with COVID and lies upon lies coming out. Untruths all galore for the glory of an ego. Unbeknownst to me, living in that chaos stirred up PTSD in me yet again because of the chaos I had incurred. And my world was going 90 miles an hour and I could not shut my brain off to save my soul. And I started drinking heavily again and I was hiding it again. And in January of 2020, my dad passed away and I dealt with that with my uncle. My brother and sister had nothing to do with it, but I love my uncle and it's not his fault that my dad was a horrific person. It's not his fault. And I did what I believed was my daughterly duty. And I was back in chaos with that. And then in March of 2020, March 12th, to be exact, the world shut down. Thank you, COVID. And I was still teaching. I was teaching elementary music. And I'm doing it online going, what the fucking hell is going on? And at that time, my husband and I were separated for the first of what was to be three different times. And, and it's because I told him to move out. Because I, I, it was more important for me to be able to drink openly than with him there harming him. I thought I was doing him a service. I thought I was doing him a favor. What I was doing was making yet another excuse. I knew at this point I was an alcoholic and I told people that I was an alcoholic and that I was a chronic relapser because that is absolutely 1000% true. And I could not, I thought, because I had a sponsor, I'm working the steps. It took me until October of 2022, which is what, eight months ago, to realize I never fully gave myself over to step one. Step one, powerlessness. But I wasn't just powerless over alcohol, guys. I was powerless over my life. My life that all of this tale of woe that I'm telling you, I was, let's see, I was on the board for the Colorado State Choir governing board from the year 2000 to 2012. And from 2010 to 2012, I was the president of the Colorado State All-State Choir Board. I was the one making those decisions. In 2018, I was nominated for Grammy Music Educator of the Year, made it to the quarterfinals. I was nominated by students. My life was not a tragedy. It really wasn't. But the piece of pie of me 
that was the alcoholic, I believed I was that dirtbag. I lived in shame and guilt and kept wondering, why are these good things happening to me? Why is my urban group of children scoring as high at a, at a music festival as kids who have, who are primarily suburban white kids who have been singing since kindergarten. And I am working my ass off giving support after support after support to my kids so that they would have the same opportunity. And I was many times, you know, the, the educator in our building of the year. And I took it humbly because I never felt I deserved it or earned it. I thought my kids were great because I was there for 25 years because of longevity. I thought my kids at the elementary school were great because I did think I took them to sing the national anthem at a Rockies game. I mean, I did things and I took the urban kids. We went, we went to New York five times, Italy, four times, England and France and California and all these things. And I fundra we fundraised our butt off because I wanted them to have these opportunities to show them they could transcend from what their crappy life was that they were living at home. And I still hadn't transcended mine. And I can say that openly and honestly, because I didn't know when COVID hit what, what was actually about to happen, which was going into that summer, not knowing what the next school year was going to look at. And our particular school district decided after much debate between the superintendent and school board that we were going to be completely online that first quarter. And I'm like, what the hell? And, and we were told that in Aurora Public Schools, there could be no music, no singing, nothing, because one of the quickest ways to spread the disease is through singing. So we decided as a school, we were going to do Maurice teaching arts and crafts online to 65 third graders in a Zoom call. Let me tell you how fun that is. I can't even tell you. The stories I can tell you are horrific. But before that happened, we had two weeks, August 1st, or excuse me, I'm lying to you. July 28th is when it started. We went back to school as teachers, but it was completely online. And we had two weeks, 10 days to be exact, to learn 13 different computer programs in order to grade, in order to film, in order to video upload, in order to Zoom, in order to Google Meet, in order to do things to be anywhere near successful. And on August 14th of 2020, that was the Friday before we were to have students online on Monday, I lost my shit. I lost it. I couldn't do it. All of the things I've ever been taught, all of the things I was good at was out the window because I wasn't doing one of them. I had to change my whole philosophy, my whole thought process. And I came home that Friday after school and I started drinking. And I was talking to friends about my drinking, saying, I don't want to drink. And I'm telling them, I'm lying to them that I'm not drinking. And I'm clearly drinking. And Juan came home from work. And I had just got the interlock out of my car a month before. I told him I need to go for a drive. And he said, are you sure you want to do that? Because in Al-Anon, it's not about telling the person all their, what they're doing that's wrong. It's letting them make those, some of those decisions. And I said, yep, I'm going to be fine. And I got in my car and I drove two miles to my liquor store and I bought eight shooters of vodka. And the wonderful part of alcoholism, which is the insanity piece, the insanity piece told me, oh my God, Marie, you can't go home and hide those. He's going to find them. So you need to drink all eight of them in the parking lot right now. It's already drunk and I'm drinking all of these. 
And then I step out of my car and I take all the shooters and I throw them in the trash can right in front of the liquor store thinking I've hidden the evidence. I'm going to go home and I'm going to go to sleep because I'm so upset and I am in so much pain. And I was driving around. I called a friend of mine and I thought, oh, I got to drive around a little bit before I get home so I don't smell like alcohol. Do you see the insanity of this? First off, a normal person, even going out, would have bought it, brought it home and hidden it or said to your husband, look, look, dude, sorry, you're probably going to get pissed, but I'm going to drink this and I'm going to get drunk. But I couldn't do that. My ego was too big. And uh, I'm driving into my neighborhood. I live on a corner. My best friend, Jody lives three houses down on the other side. I pulled in front of her house, tapped her tree, turned off my car and blacked out. She saw it. This was probably 1030 at night. She came out, knocked on the window and I did not come to. And they were worried that I had died or had a seizure. She had no idea I'd been drinking because she didn't know about my drinking because I kept it hidden from her. They called the police, opened my car door, and he asked me where I lived. And Jody said she lives right there at the corner. Now, my husband was home. The cop walked me down to my house. He knocked on the door, rang the doorbell, and nobody answered. I did not have the wherewithal to just open the fucking front door. He didn't answer because we never answer our door that late at night. That's why. He wasn't being a turd. He didn't answer. And because he didn't answer, I got my third DUI. Oh, Lord Jesus, help me. Third DUI in the state of Colorado is a mandatory minimum 60 days. And I knew it. And that cop took me to detox. He did not take me to jail. He should have. And he told me he should have. And that BAC, believe it or not, with all of that alcohol I ingested, but because it happened so quickly, it hadn't all filtered into my body. When I did the blow test in my car, it was a 0.21. Later on at the hospital, it was a lot higher by the time it had all come in. But I called, a week later, I called my attorney from the first two and I said, dude. And he said, I'll do what I can. And he worked with me and I did. I got 60 days in home detention and I got 60 days jail time. And because of COVID, I was offered 60 days work release, which if you don't know what that is, you basically, you're working your job. You leave in the morning to go do your job. You come back and you stay the night in jail and you're put in a different pod area, right? And you're still eating the food and you're still in your, your stripes or whatever, but it's only at night. And then in the morning you do it again. And as long as you can drive your car, et cetera. And I'm thinking, man, I'm screwed because I knew I was retiring that spring because I'd had it with the COVID, with the everything else. I was, I could retire because I had so many, I had 28 years in and I was like, damn it. But because of COVID, everything kept getting pushed out and pushed out. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And my lawyer's telling me, get a job at a gas or at a car wash or something. So you have a job. Well, I didn't. And I didn't. And it kept getting pushed out and pushed out. And the jail time getting, kept getting pushed out because the only county in the state of Colorado, Adams County, up until a month ago now, did not open for work release. Did not open. I was doing probation and I got serious about my sobriety. 
I did. I got serious about my sobriety because I had to and wanted to move back home. And we were living together and I was serious. And I, and when I say serious, I was serious for a while. And I was really getting into scripture and doing the things I needed to do. And then I would relapse. I could go three months now. And then I would relapse because my brain would just, and it's not because I was in pain. My brain would not shut off. And then it was a month and my brain wouldn't shut off. And it was this and it was that. And, and it wasn't events. I was deliberately drinking. I knew when I was going to drink, I was going to intentionally drink to black out because I could not shut my brain off and I could not understand why. And in February of 2022, Juan moved out and we, under the premise, we would work on our marriage, but I really need to get my shit together. But it was during that time, he's an atheist and I'm really leaning heavily into God and I'm just not understanding why I'm still relapsing. Like I really couldn't get to the I couldn't figure it out. Even my sponsor was like, I'm not, I was doing everything right. If that makes sense. And I was making amends and I was doing the forgiveness part. And I was telling other people about, you know, how, how they could recover. And my son moved out at the same time. He's 23. He should have moved out. <laughs> you know? So I'm living by myself, really having to face some demons and, and face myself. And I went into the summer and I had planned and planned. And in, on June 8, June 14th, a year ago, Next Wednesday, I went to Adams County Spa and Treatment Center, as I lovingly started to call it, and I was scared to death. I knew I had to do it at 60 days straight time, and that is another podcast in the making because I learned things about myself. I learned about how unfair, unjust our system really is. I did not need to worry about getting my ass kicked. I was worried about the girls that I made friends with because of other girls that were bringing in drugs and were giving it to them. And these girls wanted to be sober. I was worried about the fact that there were no programs that they said were available weren't. And I started an AA recovery group and a recovery Bible group because I had to maintain my sanity. And I lived in constant chaos for 60 days. I lived, I had COVID there. I was in a quarantine cell for nine days where I had an hour out a day with ants in my cell and nobody to talk to. And I was spinning and spiraling and writing and drawing and trying to do anything to calm my mind and my brain and reading scripture after scripture and crying and singing and trying to find joy in a place of dismal despair. My husband did not write to me like he said. And what I've learned is when you're on the inside, life still goes on on the outside. I was convinced I would not be institutionalized and I was. And I came out, my son picked me up at 3.45 in the morning on August 14th of 2022. And I had a decision to make, shit or get off the pot, Marie, we've got to find out what the problem is. We've got to get to the root cause. And I've been seeing a trauma therapist. I've been dealing with trauma at this point for over a year and, and really doing EMDR therapy. And a week after I got out of jail, my husband told me he wanted a divorce and that was hard because the other two divorces were my decision because of abuse from the second one. The first one was because of sexual preference. Is that a good way to put it? <laughs> it wasn't my choice on the sexual preference. He, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. And that's why it didn't last very long. And he didn't like who I became as a teacher because I became this gregar gregarious extroverted person. And so that was a hit. And then I, I mean, I managed to kind of get through that, by, that with staying sober. 
And then at the end of September, my sister pulled some crap on me and it threw me over the edge. She was telling me that Juan had been on a dating site for a while, like since February, since we had separated and she got matched up with him. And then she was telling me things like on his profile page, it said he was leaving a, a wife of toxic nature, an alcoholic, that I was abusive to him and that I had tainted his whole view on relationships, that he was looking for polyamory. And I believed her. I believed her. And that's important in this story because she was my sister and I trusted her and it threw me over the edge. That pain was so great. And coming out of jail and going from constant cortisol rush and fight or flight and trying to normalize back into a house by myself, boy, the struggle was real. And at the end of September, I had my last big bout of binge drinking, like where I and it, I drank bottles. I mean, I think I did four liter bottles in the span of four, four to five days. Went into a 10 hour panic attack in my withdrawal. And I use October 1st as my sobriety date. I have had a, a relapse since then. And I'll talk about that here in a moment. But I knew there was something inside of me that had snapped when I was in jail. There was something inside of me that snapped when my sister hit a very vulnerable side of me. That whole feeling of being less than, that shame and guilt. I was told in jail countless times by women, I didn't deserve to be there. You know, not just because of the color of my skin, but what I've done in life and who I was to them. They were calling me Mama Hayden. I mean, I was, they, several of them cried when I left jail. I'm not making this up. God used me in that jail. And I know that. And God spoke to me in that jail. And I knew that too. And I knew that there was something deeper. And I realized, Marie, you are powerless over your life. That's why you're relapsing. You are powerless over these, this trauma that you've incurred. You're powerless over PTSD. You're powerless over people pleasing. You're powerless over perfectionism. You're powerless over something that's not quite right with your brain, but you don't know yet. Because I still didn't know. And you got to give everything over to God. Stop focusing on your alcoholism. I was doing everything I needed to with my trauma therapist, but I hadn't given it all over to God in a recovery process. And that moment of realizing that was so huge because doesn't that just seem like the simplest thing I should have been doing all along? And I just didn't because I didn't know. And I used to tell people, I don't know and think to myself, why am I giving that answer? I should know the answer. What are my triggers? I don't know. And, you know, as a parent, when your kid says, I don't know, you're, you get furious and angry. And I'm like, of course, you know. But you know what I've learned is I don't know is a valid answer. It just is. Because sometimes we just don't know. Because sometimes it hasn't been revealed to us. My sponsor said to me time and time again, more will be revealed. She's right. And uh, I said, screw it. And all of the sudden, not 24 hours later, I had no craving. I had no urges. I had no desire to drink. It wasn't the constant every day. I mean, I did thank God every morning and I still do. Thank you, God, that I'm sober. Please keep me sober today. But I didn't go through periods during the day where it was like, do I want to drink? Should I drink? Or those thoughts, you know, that we think we deserve to drink. We should drink. We shouldn't drink. We know we shouldn't drink. Oh my God, everybody's going to leave us if we drink. 
and Juan must want a divorce because I'm an alcoholic. No, there was so much more to it. You know, he had told me your personality is too big. Who the fuck says that to somebody? Because I didn't understand why. Why is my personality so big? Why do I have to talk and talk and talk to make a point or talk to process? And I couldn't figure it out. And in November, I had a falling out with my sister over a group text. Boy, I know we've all done it where we sent a group text thinking it was to one person and oh, whoops, <laughs> everybody sees it. Oops. And I will say this, I've taken accountability for it. It was, it was silly. It was not condescending, but my sister, and I, and I say this because I did share it with other people. I knew what I did was wrong. I apologized profusely. I didn't apologize for what I said because I would, I would have still said it. If it were sent to the one person that I thought it was sent to, I would have still said it. But knowing that it hurt her feelings and all it was, was to my aunt, don't worry about my sister coming to Thanksgiving because she just came back from Europe because we were talking about going to Arizona to see my other auntie. So you don't have to worry about that because she can, my sister can create a different family dynamic. Yeah. And there's reasons behind that. And so that's all I said, but I said, but I invited her because I know I will never hear the end of it if I don't. Boom, there you go. That was the, the boom moment. And she went off the deep end about it. She said, all you're ever going to be is a drunk. I mean, really targeting everything wrong in my life that was vulnerable to me. You can't make a marriage work. You're shitty for this and that because of that group text. And I said, and I just said, I stuck to my guns. I've made amends with you. And if you don't accept my apology, that's on you. First time I've ever done that and really relinquished myself of her issue with the situation. So we didn't talk to each other until April, this past April, but in the in-between, as I was working through this with my trauma therapist, I jokingly said to her, I said, man, my brain is still, it's just spinning out of control. You would think I had ADHD. And she said, you do have ADHD. And I said, I do. She said, yeah, I knew from the moment you told me you made lists about your lists and then had lists to go with those lists and post-it notes everywhere. And I'm like, that's not normal. Like I'm thinking this is a normal thing. And I started talking to her and she gave me a book to read called, and I would any of you that suffer from ADHD or think you might have it, it's called I'm Not Crazy, Lazy, or Stupid. And it changed my world because it described me to a T. I thought ADHD just meant that hyperactive part. I have a lot of energy because, dude, I have a lot of energy from morning until night. And I can drink coffee and anything caffeinated at 2 o'clock in the morning and go back to sleep. I just thought I'm just special that I just had no idea that these are symptoms of ADHD. And it's just that my brain is wired different. Yeah, I process by talking and that's okay. And I and I will talk and talk. And now I just say to people, listen, I may have told you this before, but if I'm saying it, it's because I'm still processing to it. Please bear with me. But I also give them the grace and say, you can put your hand up to me and say, Marie, you've already told me this and I don't need to hear it again. And I'm not gonna take it personally. Because what happened, what was happening subsequently is anytime somebody said that to me, well, you know what I did? I shoved it down. I took it personally. Something's wrong with me. I'm not normal and nobody wants to hear me. And I wasn't being heard, which is a human need, a huge human need. So you take all of that, you culminate that with all of the trauma. My trauma therapist told me, she said, it's amazing you weren't an alcoholic at the age of 16, you know, <laughs> because 
of so much. And I can say, honestly, it is God that has saved me from this disease. It is God every single day, every day. It's the supports that I have around me. My sister and I have, you know, we kind of mended some fences in April and long story short on that one, because again, that's another podcast to see the similarities in my sister of the disorder my dad has had was a shock and something I was not expecting. And some things that she said that I shall not talk about triggered the deepest seed of trauma and that is repressed memories because of a story that she that she fabricated and told me and I believed her and that pain was the worst pain and I did relapse for a day and I say that and I'm going to tell you that I say that actually proudly as strange as that sounds I could have completely gone off the deep end and I would have drank to death I would have, and I called my friends. I called a couple of friends. And I said, I went to the store and I bought two, no, excuse me. I bought three pints of vodka and I'm going to drink them. Please come over. Please come over and sit with me. Just, and I didn't even tell them what had happened. I called 10 people and six showed up. Three, three stayed with me and one stayed the night with me and stayed the next night with me. And they helped me through that. I drank two of those bottles, not the third. I told them where the third was and they went and got it and got rid of it for me. And I said, I know I can't drink this pain away because the pain will still be there. The pain of withdrawal is too great now. I'm fortunate I've never seized, but I've had everything else happen, even to the DTs and the tremors and the shakes and the awful. And that was a month ago and things have gotten way worse in this situation, but I'm not drinking over it. And I'm not even thinking about drinking over it because I wake up every morning on purpose for a purpose, the same purpose for a purpose that I did with my kids when I was teaching. And last fall, after I got out of the Shea Spawn treatment center, I felt led to start a community choir. And I did where the Colorado's pop rock choir and I wanted to do something and give back to the community because I knew how music had been hit and targeted in public schools during COVID. We were an afterthought. And what we proved to a lot of administrations across the state of Colorado is that you don't need us. Kids can still graduate high school without having music. What they didn't understand was the importance of what it does in brain research. I can give you data all over the place and scientific proof of why we need to have music in schools. But what it does is it allows you to have a voice. The text of the music allows you to be heard. And the greatest part of all is after you've internalized that text, you can give it back out to others. If we don't have music, our society will not have a soul. And I believe that. And so I started this group and my philosophy was this, and it still is. We need, we're going to need a place to perform. I don't want to find a place to perform. We're going to go to high schools. We're going to perform in their auditorium. We're going to let their kids open for us. We're going to sell $10 tickets and we're going to give 75% of that profit to that school's choir program. And in the fall, we went to Hinkley High School, the school I thought I'd never walk back into. And on the Thursday before Thanksgiving, in a snowstorm, in an urban area where people don't want to go, 
we raised $2,000 for that school. And I went in and worked with those kids. And because of doing that, God has opened the door for me to work in Aurora Public Schools next year as a coach and mentor to new teachers one-on-one. And this spring, we went to Westminster High School. That choir director is a good friend of mine because she's a former student. And we raised another two grand. And in the next week, we went to Prairie View High School here in Brighton. And we raised $1,000. And it was a little bit more. I'm giving you ballpark of the 2000 We raised over five grand this year. We jumped from 40 members in the fall to 55, second term ages 16 to 71, all shapes, colors, sizes, races, sexual identification, religious views. And you know what I did on that first rehearsal in the fall? I was vulnerable. I told them I'm a recovering alcoholic. You need to know that about me because I knew that every single person signed up for this choir because of me. Half of them are former students from 1994 to current and the other half are just people from the community that were in a rock choir or a different choir. So we've got all gamuts. And, and I told them I had been to jail because they're my accountability group. We don't have drama. We are singing the national anthem for a Rockies game in August. We start our summer session, ironically, next Wednesday on June 14th, my year anniversary of going into jail. And... God is doing in my life what I could never have imagined. This brings me joy beyond joy. And because of that group, I've now started an acapella group that my son sings in with me. I couldn't ask. I couldn't ask for a bigger blessing. And being diagnosed with ADHD changed my life. Being on medication that now we've got the right stuff. My brain doesn't go all over the place. I mean, it still does, but not the way it did. And I can focus on something and look at it and take a step back and go, Marie, your brain is going all over. Go drink a cup of coffee. I have tools in my toolbox that would have never been there. And I have a God that I believe in that I never would have gone back to had I not been an alcoholic. And I have to look at it that way. Otherwise, the guilt and shame of all of it will eat me up. The pain of what I have endured in my life will eat me up. And it doesn't have to. Because see, God didn't do those things to me. Because that's not God. Human beings are human beings. And they do hateful, hurtful things to each other because of what they do. It's our nature. God has always been there. I just didn't reach out to him. And what I found amazing, and I find it every single day, is that every time I reach out to him, he is there. No matter what. No matter what. He may not answer me right away, but he's got a plan greater than me. I'm going through some difficult things right now, and I'm just holding my head up, and I just go, God, you know what? I'm not carrying this today. You carry it because you said you would, and thank you that I am sober, and that's all I have to say about that. Boom, boom, boom. Wow, what an amazing journey you have. It's incredible, Maria, that you've been able to focus back on God, where some of the things that you've been through, and I've known people because they were so mad at God and so many things happened, they were ne never able to reconnect with God. And you've been able to do that. What's inside you where you've been able, you were so mad at God, and then you were able to 
realize that's not the God of my understanding? How did all that kind of happen? You know, I think part of it, it was reading in scripture. It was praying about certain things. And then, you know, some people will call it coincidence. I call it God shots or God winks, however you want to look at it. And it was like, it just kept happening and kept happening. And I'm thinking, I'm not doing anything. I'm not, you know, going out to say, okay, let's make the, let's, let's have this manifest itself. You know, I was really struggling financially all of a sudden taking care of my house by myself, paying the house payment by myself. And I'm like, God, here's my finances. I don't know what to, you know, what's happening. Oh, okay. And a week later I get a check in the mail for a $400 thing from two years ago that I had no idea that I got a rebate on. What? That, no, no, no. That's, that's not a coincidence. I just prayed, God help me financially. And those kind of things started happening more and more. And especially, especially in October, when I just said, here you go, just take this off my shoulders and help me to see and help me to understand. Because I thought if he can do those things with you know, monetary things or, you know, helping me sleep through the night, you know, any of that, then it says in my Bible that he will take those burdens. So I decided to try it out. Let's put it that way. I thought I would, let's test God. Let's see if he's, you know, kind of thing. You know, I can't look around this whole world and, and deny that there is an existence of God. I, I just can't do it. You know, faith is believing in something that is unseen, right? And I used this illustration with a friend of mine yesterday. We get in our car every day, assuming it's going to turn on. We have that faith. We don't even question it. And then when it doesn't turn on, all of a sudden, you know, we freak out. Oh, my God, what's this going to cost? What's wrong with my car? And we go through all of these things. The reality is, at the end of that, we're either going to get it fixed or we're not. But it was that faith that it was going to work to start with. So if we have that faith that it's going to work to start with, then when these problems arise, there are significant ways we can go about fixing them because of knowledge that we've acquired or people that we reach out to. And it's the same for me with God. Once I realize I, I do have faith in God because I'm not dead. I, I don't know how else to say it. I'm not dead. I've never tried to commit suicide. I know that God has used my life and especially with this choir, because I've been so vulnerable, you know, I think we live our life in the hopes that we make a difference in one person's life. And I say this very humbly. I have made the difference in several people's lives because I will, especially if I'm feeling down and this is a God thing, I shit you not. Half of my, most of my Facebook friends are former students of mine. And out of the blue, when I'm really having a down day, usually on that same day, I get an email or a text from a former student saying what a significant impact I had on their life, completely unsolicited. I don't, I didn't post it on Facebook. I'm having a shitty day. It just happened, you know, and in the choir at the end of rehearsal, lines of people to hug me. And I, you know, it's, it's overwhelming at times because I'm like, no, 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 I don't deserve good things. I don't deserve those good things. But you know what God has shown me is we all deserve good things because God doesn't make junk. You know, I asked my pastor back in October, because I met with him and I said, I don't get it. I don't, it's not, what is my purpose here? It's like, why did he make this? Why did he make me this way? Why is this happening? And he said, 
You know why, Marie? Because God simply looked at the world and said, I don't have a Marie. And you came into existence. And he's using your life to help others. You know, I read a meme once that said, my, my, my journey may be somebody else's survival guide. We don't know that what we're going through isn't going to impact someone else. And while I have moments of wishing that things had been different, I am glad my dad didn't sexually abuse my sister. I hate that I did, that I went through that, but God has used that in my life to show me that I can help others. And that's when my anger dissipated and I realized he's always been there. All I had to do was ask him for help. He's never hated me. He's never hated me. And uh, that realization was very overwhelming because I almost wanted him to. I almost needed to believe that he did to justify my anger. And once I realized he didn't, I couldn't justify the anger anymore. <laughs> it was kind of, it's, and it's been like that even where my father is concerned. I have forgiven him. I did not forgive the acts, but I forgave him. But I didn't forgive him for him. I forgave him for me. You know, I'm going through that right now with my sister man, I am not in control of this situation, but I have to forgive some things that have happened for me, for me. And I can tell you, honestly, all that crap she told me about my current ex-husband, they were all lies. I believed something that was completely untrue. And what God is showing me with that, it doesn't mean I have to live untrusting because I'm a very, through all of this, as crazy as this sounds, I'm a very trusting person. But the reason I'm a trusting person is because I want people to trust me. And I'm working really hard to regain trust with certain people in my life because of the drinking, right? And if God can trust me, then I can trust God. And he's just showing me, ask me, Marie, if you have questions, if you've got that gnaw in your gut, that's an ADHD thing, by the way, that intuitive, something's not right because the red flags go off because I've heard something earlier somewhere that didn't line up. Trust it and ask me, I will guide you. That's what he's leading me. That's how he's led me today. Hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. And then with what happened in October, where you finally realized that you hadn't done a step one, right? And then yeah. you realized that not only did you need to do a step one for alcohol, you needed to do a step one for everything. Everything. For and, everything. <laughs> and then the next day, basically your desire for alcohol was taken away right it was gone so <clears throat> run us through that a little bit because i know there's so many people that suffer from that where they're continuing into the next day and they can't stop right so what would you say to that person i really thought several times i was doing step one i'm powerless over alcohol and even when people would say in a meeting you know you need to give the other things that you're powerless over man do we want control you know, I do, I'm not gonna lie to you. I take medication for my ADHD. I do take some medication for anxiety right now. I had stopped for a little bit because <laughs> the anxiety that I was having was a result of the ADHD, right? And it doesn't make you awful if you have to take some medication. Now, Trexone helped me a lot for a while, you know, with cravings. I'm not anti, anti those drugs or an abuse if that's the route you wanna go. It's the mental part though. That's That's the obsession part. It's that mental piece and really getting down to the nitty gritty of the why. And the why for me was, man, there's a lot of trauma there. And that whole belief system of 
I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. My self-esteem is crap. And then be that being reinforced because that's what I knew. That's what I was attracting. Whether it was a husband, a principal or whatever the situation, no wonder, you know, that those things were happening to me because without knowing it, I was looking for that because it validated everything I believed about myself, which wasn't a good belief system. And that moment of just saying, you know what? I'm powerless over my anxiety. I'm powerless over my panic attack. God, you've got to take this. And I need you to take it out of my mind. I need you to take it. What can I do? And I started doing some meditations and boy, does meditation help. Journaling helps. The things that I used to go, man, that's going to take too much time. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to give those times to it. It was not only was it necessary, it was therapeutic. And I could put down on a piece of paper, the shit I was feeling, fold it up, throw it in what I call a God box and leave it and tell myself, you don't have to pick this up. This isn't yours. Just throw it over there. I can't solve the world's problems. I can't solve my anxiety. I can't solve the chaos of the world. I cannot solve what's happening in Ru between Russia and Ukraine. I can't, but I can make a decision that if it's going to bother me, I don't have to watch the news, even though I want to, because man, I feel more comfortable being obsessed with those things. But those obsessions lead me to alcohol because I can't control those emotions. So it's it was little steps that I had already started to put in place, but it was that moment and clarity of my life isn't mine. My life is God's. If God created me in his image, then I'm a piece of God. I'm just here to learn and spread his word as best I can. Therefore, I need to give all of this to God. And I'm reminded in the New Testament where Jesus, when he would pray to God, if people think Jesus didn't struggle or people think Jesus wasn't tempted, they're stupid because he still was a human being. Why was he praying so fervently to God? He had to take this, take these desires, take this, take my need to be in drama, take my need to be submerged in chaos because that's how I know how to survive life and teach me how to stop surviving my life and live my life. And it was really, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was the simplest thing I've ever done at the same time, because as soon as I did it, I was free. And even my girlfriend that sat with me in the hospital the next day when she picked me up, she said to me, and I love this woman, she said, what changed? I said, what do you mean? She goes, your countenance changed. Just there's something. And I went, yeah, I feel that too. And I knew in that moment. And I told her, I said, I just, because I was up praying that whole night. I didn't sleep a wink because I just prayed over and over. Take this, God, just take this. And I meant it. And that was the biggest difference. I actually meant it. Take it take it. I hate I'm getting a divorce. And actually my husband, well, we'll be divorced on the 22nd officially. We get along better now. I, I listen, I could, could not have predicted this at all, but I, but God has shown me why we shouldn't have been together, why we can't be together now. And I'm okay with that because I can accept that. But I meant it when I said, take this. And so many times when I tried to do it before, I meant it 75%, maybe even meant it 95%. A lot of times it was 50%. But when I meant it 100% and just said, 
listen, whatever happens, and if I die tomorrow, just take me. But you got to take this because I cannot continue to live this way. I won't survive it. So then with your, you relapsed for a day, you've ended up being able to empower yourself of that relapse, right? Right, right. In fact, I even went on Sobertown and said about it because I thought, and, and I'll tell you why, part of it's, it is that accountability piece, clearly, but the bigger reason was because I thought how many people have been in that same boat and we get so, and I may, and I know I'm not just speaking for myself. I, I, yeah, I hope someday I can say I have 30 years of sobriety, but really it's just important that I have today of sobriety. And we get so tied into that. And it's like, oh my God, I had seven months of sobriety and then I lost my sobriety. You didn't lose your sobriety, Marie. I did not lose my sobriety. What happened is I had a relapse of judgment. I had a relapse because my brain went back to old behavior patterns and I, and I allowed it. I did. I made a choice and I allowed it because the pain was so great that I forgot how to give that over to God. Because when you're trained so long to believe a certain way and do certain behaviors, you know, thinking that it's going to go away overnight, you know, it's, it's always a work, you know, a woman who is pregnant for nine months and then expects to have the baby and lose every bit of baby fat in the first two months is ridiculous. You took nine months to put it on. You should take nine months to take it off. Well, I got good solid 2012. That's 11 years. <laughs> you know, it's like, so this becomes that work in process progress. And I did use it to, to be an empowering moment to say, wow, I didn't relapse and go off the, the, the edge. You know, I didn't drink to oblivion. I didn't withdraw the way I would have withdrawn before. I did reach out to people. I did talk about this and I acknowledged it. And I even, like I said, I said it on Sobertown to say, you know, we all, we all hit those points, but it does not negate any of the work that I've done or the work that God's done in my life. I just didn't choose at that moment to reach out to him like I should have, but I did the next day. <laughs> well, I think it's beautiful because a lot of people think they think a relapse, you got to go back to zero. Exactly. And, and unfortunately that's a huge mindset where it becomes really destructive for them. And I wish there was a better way. And I've talked about this with other people of measuring our journey other than time, because it's not about the time. It's about the journey. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That one of the things that I just think is so empowering with the this choir that you've put together is you're teaching others to have a voice. Yeah. So how I has that changed knowing that you have a voice? You know, it is very empowering. I like to use that word. When I go into choir rehearsal, you know, that first one, I knew I was taking a risk. I had no idea I was going to tell them I had been to jail. I fully knew I was going to tell them I was a recovering alcoholic. Cause at that point, most of them knew anyway, because I talk about it that part openly. Right. I didn't know God was going to open the door for the other things that I was going to talk about. You know, they don't shut me down and they listen. And even if, you know, a couple of them zone out or whatever, I feel heard. And just knowing that part is breaking down some of those interior walls where I felt like I didn't have a voice. You know, I said when I was in high school, I was like this little wallflower girl, you know, band geek, theater geek, choir geek. And when my choir teacher gave me a voice, 
he knew I was a good singer, it, you know, from freshman year on. And I was in the top choirs and all of that razzmatazz. But he actually gave me a voice my senior year. And and I'm going to say that figuratively and literally, because obviously, you know, I was the lead in this musical. But all of a sudden, I could embrace that, oh, wow, I actually have some talent. Now, it took me years to realize that. In this choir, I remember distinctly, this happened in, geez, I want to say February, so not that long ago. I said to my choir, because it finally hit me, because I was still working the choirs at Hinkley, because she's a new teacher. I said, you know what I realized? And this was so hard for me to admit. Oh my God, Dan, this was so hard. It wasn't a fluke. I, I wasn't good at my job because I was there for 25 years. I was good at my job because I was good at what I did. I found a cassette tape from 1994 spring concert, went to the ARC, bought a cassette player. <laughs> they still make those. No, they don't make those, but you can buy them for $3.99. And I did. And I took it into the school, into Hinkley when I was subbing, because I sub there now. And I was subbing for choir and I had gotten to know these kids and I played them, the choir, the spring concert of my first year. I thought I was going to listen to like tragedy, you know, <laughs> I mean, I thought it was going to be like shit-tastic. And it was really good. It was really good. And it was in that moment, they listened to it because they've been struggling since COVID. It's been a struggle. They've had three teachers since I left in 2018. So that'll tell you, it's been a struggle. And, but it is a struggle because I was really great at what I did there. And I knew I made a difference in kids' lives and I knew I used music to teach life skills and to give them a voice. What I didn't realize is I cultivated their talent as well and was good at what I did. And having that realization and then sharing that with my choir, who I love them, they're like, duh, <laughs> that's why we're here, Marie, because you're really good at what you do. Having that validation was hard at first because I always look at it going, I don't want this to be about my pride. I don't want this to be about my ego. Not because I want to be humble, but I just don't, that I, that arrogance is not for me. It's just not for me, but it's okay to accept those compliments because they are true. And those, that's God telling me, I did not make junk, Marie. I did not make junk. And it's okay to accept those talents within yourself right. that, hey, I can help these kids transcend where they're yes. at. Absolutely. And you know, Marie, I believe with everything that you've been through with your life and your recovery, you're going to help a lot of people transcend into their recovery too. Like even your ability to stay connected to God as other people say higher power and have been able to turn that around. To me, that's huge. It was surprising to me. You know, it's like, I'll never be that person. I, I told somebody when I was in jail, I said to this girl, it was funny. I'm sitting there at the table in the the day room area. You know, it was like a princess pod. You know, we had all these like dorm style stuff. And I'm sitting there at the table, 7.15 in the morning. Most of the girls are asleep. And I sit there with my life recovery Bible, reading it openly. And girls will walk around. What are you reading, Marie? What are you doing? And I'm talking to them. And do you know what dawned on me? God prepared me for that because I witnessed to children when I was a junior in high school and witnessed on the beach. And I, instead of hating those moments, can now embrace those moments as just part of this journey. And that's part of my past. And I know how to do that. 
but now I'm not embarrassed by it. Now I don't feel like I'm being told I have to do this or this consequence is going to be there. Now I can do it in a way that is genuine and authentic. And yeah. Now you're embracing your gifts. <laughs> there you go. Yes, you are correct. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> Boom. Marie, it's just been a pleasure having you here on Sober Town Thank you. podcast. I hope we can do some other things with you too in the future because I really want, we want all forms of recovery and you do that you have a, a recovery Bible, right? So that's yes. a little bit different than the Holy Bible. Is that right? Yeah. It's oh, as I pull it out and look at it, it even has, because I had it sent to me in jail. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? But it's called the life recovery Bible. I have it in large print because I'm blind, but it's wonderful because it gives a, a kind of, how do I say a paraphrasing, but it will talk about verses at the bottom and, you know, like you just said, you just said gifts. And of course, this is what I open up to the ministry of the church today, especially in meeting some of the greatest human needs requires a cooperative effort of people using their unique sp spiritual gifts to help others. And that's in deciphering part of numbers, the, the book of numbers. And I've been reading through this Bible just from, you know, I started last summer in Genesis when I got the Bible on July 1st, and I'm now in the book of Chronicles but it gives a synopsis of the people, what the strengths and accomplishes, accomplishments were, what the recovery themes are in it, in that particular book, you know, whether it's power of denial, intervention, what it means to hit bottom. And, you know, admitting our dependencies will not only help us recover, but will also stop us from hurting the people close to us. It takes the scripture and it shows how God has used that scripture for the, you know, of the stories, but how we can take that and internalize it and show, and it reinforces that part that God is there for us and will help us recover if we ask him. And so to have that in this journey, to be able to open my Bible and read that through the Psalms or whatever, you know, book I'm going through, it's, when I say life-changing, it has been life-changing because it's given the scripture life for me, you know, and it's a new living, it's the new living testament it's instead of the King James version. So it's more palatable when you're reading it, it reads more like a story instead of the these thou's and therefores <laughs> and the thou shalt. So you're using this in conjunction with working the 12 steps, correct? Absolutely. Yep. And I, I just want to get more 12 steps around Sobertown so people understand that's a viable choice too, because a lot of people have heard a lot of mischaracterizations of the steps. But look, when we're getting sober, we need whatever's available. And for me, I've tried to work the steps. They didn't, they really haven't worked for me through my life, working them, say, per one through 12. But now when I look through my sober journey, I see so many of those steps that have organically appeared right behind me. And then yes. there's a friend that I just dearly respect. He's an AA, and he's just so graceful the way he shares the steps with people and it's just given me a whole new understanding of the steps and the history because without bill w and dr bob we wouldn't even really have recovery that's right that's absolutely right yeah it's been a pleasure getting to know you Mar yes Mar absolutely i am honored and i feel very blessed to be able to do this and share my story i really do thank you so much and let's do more let's do it <laughs> And thank you, everybody, for sharing 
Marie's sober journey with us. Boom. Thank you.